Welcome to the Payments Podium podcast hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. You may have to hit OK. Hey, everybody, Kevin Olson, payments professor here and bringing you another episode of the Payments Podium. Now, today on the Payments Podium, we're going to be talking about, of course, electronic payments, but we're going to look into what's happening in fraud, you know, one of those real hot topics, and what can be done to be able to help stop and prevent fraud. And today, well, we've got a great speaker. It's Chase Petrie. He's the COO of Pi, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about himself and about who Pi is. But first, let's go ahead and welcome Chase. Glad to have you on the Payments Podium today. Thanks. Happy to be here, Kevin. All right. Now, I got to tell you, one of the first things I ask everybody who comes on the show, how did you get started in payments? Because, you know, I've never met anybody that was in preschool or in uh, middle school, something like that, going, I'm going to work in electronic payments when I get older. Usually it's a unique story of what got you into this industry. And, and it's usually fun to hear how that happened, too. So, Chase, how did you end up in electronic payments? Yeah, that's a, it is kind of a fun story for me. So I originally, my first foray into payments was I was working for an alternative. So I, I was working in data science and statistics um, uh, in my undergrad. And I started working with a company that's now a very large company called Progressive Leasing. Uh, at the time, though, it was a really small startup. And I was working as a underwriter, you know, doing credit risk underwriting and modeling. Um, and it was a small company. So I was working directly with the CEO, uh, the founder there. And at one point he was like, Hey, you know, I was just kind of the, the free electron kid, right. That was just doing just random stuff. And he was like, Hey, why don't you start looking into our merchant, uh, you know, our merchant agreements our merchant services agreements, because we're paying a huge amount for payment processing um, for, you know, servicing the debt, right? So we would take credit card and debit payments over the phone for people to make their, you know, loan payments or their, really their lease payments. Um, and so I got thrown into it, you know, I was a young, young, I was still in my undergrad and I started calling all the banks, starting getting quotes, starting to understand interchange, how interchange worked, et cetera. So I did that and I worked in kind of finance. And then I left the finance world for about 10 years to work in SaaS. And how I ended up getting back really like more truly in the payment side of things, not just kind of a project was, it's actually a really funny story. I was, I was, I had kind of lived all over the world. I was living in London at the time and uh, a kind of co-founder and founder of a business I had worked with previously uh, was running a SaaS company called Podium. Uh, it's a fairly large kind of startup uh, backed by like Excel and Y Combinator and Google Ventures and stuff. And he reached out and said, hey, why don't you come run international business for us? They had ambitions to start expanding outside the US. And that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years. And then probably about a week before I was relocating my entire family. So, you know, leaving London to move back to Utah um, just temporarily to then move back abroad to start opening offices for Podium. The founder and Adam, who is the president, called me up and he said, hey, I don't think we're going to do this international thing. Potentially, I want you to come in and and like confirm our thinking that it's not the right move. But 
what do you think about being the GM of a payments business that we want to start? And I thought, well, I know what interchange is, but that's about it. And he's like, it's fine. You'll figure it out. Oh, you, you so know, said, okay, you, you've, you've hit some it. key things that, that I love for listeners to hear and that, that they comment on and email me about too. You got thrown into it. And, and a lot of people in the industry, they get thrown into it. Or you even just said, you understand interchange. There's people I'm sure listening right now going, well, just tell me what that is. And, and it would be worth the price of admission because it can get complicated and hard to understand. I, I love that you went globally too. Now let's go ahead though and get to what are you doing today in payments? Cause that that's, that's what we really want to hear. Yeah. So since then I've joined um, a business called Pi and what Pi does is it's actually the risk engine that two global fintechs. I mean, these are, these are some of the largest fintechs in the world were built on. One is Paytm, which is an Indian business. Um, it was built on this platform called Pi and then another one in Japan called PayPay. And the scale of these businesses are massive. The India business is 350 million users, 25 million merchants. I mean, we're, we're looking at 500 plus billion uh, decisions a day across just India and Japan. Japan, same thing. It's a 500 or 50 million users. And the thing that's unique about those ecosystems is these are all real-time payments. I mean, these are not on credit cards where or or you know heaven forbid in the in the USACH where it's even longer so to be able to build a, a risk engine that is able to analyze fraud risk in real time and we're talking in milliseconds is a real engineering feat and that's what the pie business does is it's this risk engine that was originally built to support these two massive ecosystems but has since been scaled um, and now we're we're entering the U.S. Just a few months ago, we formally announced our entrance into the U.S., and we have some really fun momentum here. But at the core, what Pi is, it's a fraud risk management engine that was originally built to underwrite real-time payments. So let me get this straight, because I'm sure you're aware of, and people out there listening know too, in the U.S., we are just starting to work with faster payments. And that's how we refer to it. And then, you know, there's also instant payments. Right now, we have RTP available from the clearinghouse. And coming soon, we'll have FedNow and their instant payment solution. And fraud is just one of those huge topics, no matter what area of payments you're working in. But I hear people all the time saying, I'm concerned about fraud when it starts moving faster. And if I heard you correct, are you're telling me there are solutions that can work in real time for real-time payments and Fed now? Yeah, the the core of it is, here's my kind of macro perspective on the way the US payment system is set up and and the why and why like Asia payment systems have been able to leapfrog leapfrog the US in some ways. The US payment system was kind of you know the OG, the original payment system, right? Digital payment system before most. But because of that, you you come along with a bunch of um, tech debt as well as really well-established systems and protections, which is what the networks provide us, right? When I say the networks, I'm talking about Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. And these protections are great for consumers. I mean, they're, they're amazing. Just this morning, we were chatting through with, you know, with the team about how you know, consumer-friendly these protections are, but ultimately it, it puts the merchants and or the acquirers and even the issuers at, at risk, right? Um, 
because people learn how to abuse these protections and they learn how to get in between. But because there's these kind of settlement windows, it allows merchants and acquirers or whoever's really holding the risk in, in, in the payment to put in these protections. And the US fraud management system has really been built around using these systemic protections and these windows to their advantage. And so when you think about um, you know, some of the major players, which I won't name any names, but some of the major kind of fraud, transaction fraud risk management players today, they really are specialized in credit card payments in a card not present environment and ecosystem. They were kind of born, you know, as e as e-commerce boomed. And what they specialize in is the instrument itself. And when I say the instrument, I mean the credit card instrument mm -hmm. or the debit card instrument. And they're really, really good. And the U.S., and when I say this, I mean the U.S. is really good at analyzing and doing a bunch of machine learning around the instrument. like And doing, doing clever things like, okay, Chase's billing zip code is in Salt Lake City, Utah on the, on the credit card he's using. Kevin is a, you know, a mattress, Kevin's a mattress company in Tampa, yet the IP address where this transaction is happening is in Kansas. Like something weird is happening here. This transaction looks fishy, right? And these systems are really good at doing that. But this takes time and it's built around, again, the, the instrument where you have something like a billing zip code and a shipping zip code. It's built around kind of this existing architecture. So when you start getting into real-time payments in the U.S., uh, you don't have these windows. You don't have this traditional instrument that these ecosystems are built on today. Where, where the where things are going, and I'll pause here to get any reaction because I've been speaking for a bit. But where things are going today is moving from an instrument-focused payment to what we call an embedded payment or or a or an embedded fintech environment. I don't know if that's something, Kevin, you've talked about previously on the show or this concept of kind of embedded finance or embedded fintech or embedded payment, but that's where real time becomes possible. And we can talk a bit about why that is what's enabled. Oh, okay, my payment. payments geek, my inner payments geek is doing somersaults right now. This is great because, you know, hearing the things that you're bringing up. And first of all, I don't know how you knew I was connected between Tampa and Kansas at the same time. So that could have <laughs> actually been a legit connection, but it is one that should raise some flags. I would like to hear a little bit more if we can, you know, maybe give a high level explanation of what's the difference between instrument focused versus that embedded look. Because what you already mentioned is the fact of how a lot of the U.S. mechanisms for monitoring what we're looking at, they're not going to work in a faster environment. And so to learn more about what can be done for that, I know that would be huge for uh, everybody in the industry right now, at least here in the U.S., so when I think about this, if you go back to even 10 years ago, when you think about card present payments, you had a card in a terminal and that terminal was totally disconnected to anything but the terminal. I mean, it was connected to a network, but it wasn't like connected to a point of sale system. And the way, the easiest way I describe this to people who aren't familiar with the payment industry is when somebody hand, when you go to checkout in a physical environment and somebody hand keys the transaction value onto the terminal, and then passes you the terminal, that's a completely disconnected terminal, right? There, it's not mm -hmm. embedded into any point of sale system or anything like that. And that's, and I'll come back to what that means, but that's an unembedded, that's a that's a disconnected or an unintegrated payment flow, right? Where right. you have a you have a terminal that's completely disconnected from any type of software. 
then if you go back 10 years ago or 15 years ago for for online payments it would be the same like the original payment gateways like offnet authorized.net etc they were effectively a terminal for e-commerce right where it was it was a hosted page there was no real connection to like the the basket or the SKU level information or anything. It was just load up the do total dollar value to this one page, pretty much completely disconnected from everything that happened leading up to that page. And even early, early days, you remember, you'd actually leave the environment and go to like an authorized.net URL. So like you'd leave, leave the e-commerce store, go to authorized.net and then come back. So truly disconnected. So that's that's legacy state, right? And the reason why fraud and risk management was tied to the instrument is because that's all the information they had, right? You had the swipe with the terminal and you had the page load of the checkout page. Like that was all the information they had. Now, fast forward to today and you have on the point of sale side, you have like Square, where Square is this super rich experience. Square knows everything about that merchant. Square knows how often that merchant logs in, how many users use that point of sale system, what the average ticket size is of that merchant, what the average ticket size of that merchant relative to the other MCCs on the platform that they use. All of this incredibly rich information that the point of sale software collects about the merchant, right? Mm -hmm. And the payment is just a slice of the wider service offering, but that slice is where the risk is held, right? But they can use this entirely rich um, information that they gather on the on the user, as in the user in this case is the merchant, um, to predict fraud and to use those signals to understand, is this a risky merchant? We were even this morning talking about um, one of the use cases we support on the Pi platform as it relates to this is, um, and this is where being a, an embedded an embedded fintech is really helpful with real-time payments, and this is a, a merchant fraud use case, but we can actually check the balance of the bank account of the merchant every single time a payment is processed to make sure that that size of payment isn't going to potentially put the payment processor or the acquirer or the point of sale system at risk because they don't if that if that payment were charged back we have to make sure there's enough funds in the bank account to pull from that sub merchant and we can actually do things like check the balance of the bank account of the merchant Every single time the bank or every single time a payment, a consumer payment is made, that type of real time analysis was just impossible 10 years ago. All right. That was awesome. I just got to say, for those of you listening and can't see this, Chase is an animated speaker and you can tell that he is passionate about that. And I love seeing that passion in there, too. Uh, but we got to go back and unpack a little bit of this. So when it comes to what's available in monitoring, one of the first things I want to you know, make sure of you're basically telling me that, especially if a, and it's an accelerated payment, a payment that goes through faster, you can check a, a lot of different areas, the averages, what's been done before, if there's money even available, some maybe account verification type deals before yep. the payment goes out, right? Am I hearing that right? That you're checking? Yeah, pre-authorization. Yeah. It's pre-auth. It's pre -auth. All of those checks happen pre-auth and they happen in milliseconds. I mean, it, it's it's way lower than the human could even comprehend in terms of how long it takes to do those checks. But let me tie that back to the embedded just to, to make sure that that connection is is tight. The, the difference between the reason why we can get into faster payments now is because 
we have, and I'm talking about only from a fraud risk management standpoint, I'm not talking about the underlying rails, which is a whole other conversation, right? right. I'm only talking about the fraud risk management side of real-time payments. The reason why it's it's safe to get into this today, if you're a merchant or somebody or or a payfac or somebody who holds risk, the reason why you feel comfortable is with an embedded environment, there's all of this rich data about the embedded experience, meaning the usage of the application itself um, that you can use to feed your risk decisioning. And that decisioning can happen in milliseconds. And it's not, you're not just tied to the instrument itself. You're the, you're tied to the full ecosystem of the user. And this, and let me give an e-commerce example, because most people would connect with that. And I'll use it from a consumer perspective. Most of the time now, when you log into a, sorry, when you go purchase something online, where I buy a lot of things is backcountry.com. So it's a, it's a, it's an outdoor, outdoor goods retailer, right? I live in Salt Lake City. I ski, I mountain bike. That's where I go to buy things. Now, when I buy something on backcountry.com, I log into backcountry.com. I don't just go to some random checkout page. I don't check out as a guest. The reason for that is it has my credit card on file, has my previous history on there, has things I've looked at. I can put things in the basket. So there's all these incentives for me to log in. Well, once I'm logged in, I'm now in an, in an embedded environment, an embedded fintech environment. What that means is Backcountry has all this analysis of who Chase is. So when I go check out, it's not just looking at this random isolated payment. It's looking at who is Chase? How often does he log in? Is he logging in from the same device that he normally logs into? Is he is the basket size a normal basket size for Chase? Is he buying something that's related to things he's previously bought? All of this rich information goes into that analysis. Whereas before, 10 years ago, I'd pop out to some authorized.net page that had no context of who I was. And so fraud and risk management was really just isolated to, again, the instrument itself versus all of the usage behavior of the application that's that's facilitating the payment. This podcast is brought to you by the VSoft Corporation. VSoft offers core processing, digital banking, and payment processing solutions for financial institutions of all sizes. Follow us on Twitter at VSoft underscore corp and online at vsoftcorp.com. Okay, back to the show. All right, I, I already know that there's somebody probably going to be typing an email as they hear this, wondering, all right, Kevin, did you meet him out hiking? Because a backcountry.com, I've been there myself quite often. Uh, I'm an avid hiker. In fact, you hear about my dog Riley in a lot of my presentations on and what happens to us on our hikes and where we are able to use electronic payments. And the way you explain that is great, but what about in that situation where it's not embedded? Because that's where there's a, a lot of fear or concerns are more of those one-off type of transactions. Like the example I get a lot is, I wanna be able to make a payment in a sense of say at a flea market. Uh, it's somebody I probably will never visit again and I'm seeing for the first time, both sides, the person making the purchase and the person, you know, selling an item, they want to know that there's some security in there and it's not going to end up being fraud later. Where's the solution for that? So you're talking about a, a card present payment at a flea market and the concern is with the seller or the concern is with the buyer? Or on both sides. I mean, because that's where, you know, people like to ask, uh, hey, do I have protections there? And I know that in some cases of fraud, that that's, you know, where the fraudsters want to look at where's the weakest point that they can take advantage of. Yeah, that's a great question. So 
the way that I think about this is this may sound like a roundabout way to answer the question, but I promise I'll come back to it. But I want to set a foundation first, which is the as the risk profile of the transaction increases, the level of friction you introduce should increase. So the problem with the traditional landscape is merchants or issuers or whoever it is who's holding risk mm -hmm. are giving the same level of friction to a flea market transaction as they are to a embedded transaction, right? It makes no sense. And so my the way that I think about this is, yeah, that is a that is a very risky transaction. I would be concerned giving my card to somebody at a flea market. If I was a merchant, I'd be concerned taking a card. Um, so you do want to have the right level of friction for the right level of risk, right? right. And that's really where I think the industry is going, is learning how to introduce the right level of friction relative to the level of risk. And the flea market transaction, and this is this isn't a you know super sophisticated interesting answer, but the reality is is you would use an EMV. Like for me as a card holder, I would ensure that I'm going to dip my card. I'm going to do an EMV transaction right. because I know that I'm super protected. And if I'm the merchant, I know I'm super protected. And even if I'm using Square as the merchant, and not that the merchant would ever think about this, but even Square is protected with an EMV transaction. The issuing bank takes all of that risk off of all of the parties in the US. And so, yeah, my advice would be if your concern is the issuer, then EMV is the answer for card present. Like, don't do a keyed in transaction at a flea market. Like, <laughs> that's the short of it. Like, if you're the merchant, don't take a keyed in transaction. If you're the consumer, don't don't provide a keyed in transaction. If, 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 if people don't get anything else out of this, that should be the quote of the podcast right there. Don't do a keyed in transaction really anywhere with somebody for the first time. All right. But something else I'd like to ask too, because a lot of what you've given it applies to different payment networks, but it's been really card heavy. I just want to make sure that the same concepts that you're saying, the same way of risk monitoring with, I know the services that you're offering, can that same concept, those same uh, uh, protections, that same monitoring be applied to other payment channels as well, beyond just cards to give the same protection and a potential for reducing risk? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that you're getting at the core of, of my real, of really my perspective on fraud risk management, which is you should use the signals you should use to protect yourself against fraud should be independent of the instrument. That's the thing I want people to take away from this. The signals you use to manage the fraud should be independent of the instrument. So what I mean by signals is I mean things like usage behavior on the application. You know, what have they been doing? If it's a if it's merchant fraud risk, you know, how often does the you, the merchant log in? Is this merchant logging in from an unknown IP address or an unknown device? All of the things. What's the behavior of the merchant on the application? For example, I'll use Square. I, I like to use Square just because they're everyone knows Square and they understand it. But you know, Square. If you log into Square as a merchant for the first time, what are the things you're going to be doing? You're going to set up your SKUs, right? Let's say you're an ice cream shop. You're going to have your chocolate ice cream skew. You're going to have your vanilla ice cream. You're going to have your skews. That's the normal behavior. You might add a few like tellers or something, you know, users to the app. What you're not going to do is generate $25,000 transactions within the first hour of onboarding, right? Which is what a fraudster would do. 
That has nothing to do. That could be RTP payments. That could be credit card. That could be PayPal. That could be Venmo. That could be any type of payment, Zelle, whatever. It doesn't matter. But I'm looking at the behavior of the application. I'm not looking at the instrument to understand that this is a bad actor that's onboarded into my ecosystem. So when I think about the signals you should be using is, again, it's identity signals is the person that, who they say they are, which, again, is independent of the instrument and usage signals of the application. Those are the signals that that's where the industry is going. All right, that is some good stuff. In fact, you bring up a really important question I hear a lot in the industry, and it's as simple as this. Do faster payments equal faster fraud? Just because we offer faster payments mechanism, does that mean that fraud is going to happen more often and faster? Or is it really a case of it's the same fraud that we've seen for years and they choose, the fraudsters, choose the faster channel whenever possible to move the money just so they get access faster. So what's your opinion then when somebody says faster payments equals faster fraud? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that question or that statement really too much before. I think that in some ways, this is going to be a, a hot take, a, a direction that you probably haven't heard before. But I'm going to go, I'm going to answer this, which that's a good thing. And let me, let me, let me tell you why that's a good thing. ML machine learning models that predict fraud, which is what's happening with like technology platforms like Pi, right? Is we're using machine learning to, to understand a lot of this. Machine learning models need to be trained, it's called. They need to have some feedback loop to say, hey, this was fraud or this wasn't fraud. So the faster the feedback loop, the faster you can present prevent that fraud moving forward. And so one of the big pains with like US credit cards is. Often the signal or the, again, I'm getting more to my data science background, but like the dependent variable is a chargeback. That's like the thing that machine learning models use to understand whether it was fraudulent. But chargebacks sometimes take 90 days, which means during that period, your model doesn't understand whether this motion was fraudulent or not. And so you can't actually close the loop to adjust your behavior on acceptance. And so faster fraud in some ways is better because the feedback loop back to the ML model is instant versus 90 days, which the ML model will then adjust its approval rates from that. So faster fraud equals faster or faster payments equal faster fraud. There's a lot to unpack there, but one interesting take is that's potentially a really good thing because you can close the loop with your models much faster. So your window of exposure is much shorter. Hey, when you first started answering, I almost wanted to say you're crazy. <laughs> I love that answer because you're right. I mean, there's never been the offer of a new product, a new channel, new service without there being at first some fraud because we've got to learn it and be able to fix it. And to understand that even in machine learning, there's got to be more that goes in there as well. So that's a great answer and a view I haven't thought of before or, or heard anybody take. So we're going to give you some mega originality points right there. Uh, something else I would say too is, uh, I, I got to ask before we get to the end here, when it comes to what's happening in the future, and we, we look down the road, 
of what's happening for risk monitoring, for fraud protection, what would you say and give as to people as far as advice to be aware of this is coming, be aware of you need to prepare this or have this in place. So what do you see in the crystal ball of faster fraud, faster risk monitoring that you'd want to tell everybody? Everyone is really hot on onboarding and, and KYC and identity right now. That's like, if you look at all the startups in the fraud risk management space, where all the venture capital money is going, where all the speaker slots are going at the conferences, it's all around identity and onboarding. I think that there's a bit of a, a, a there's a huge risk here, which is there's an assumption that traditional FIs or financial institutions make is if I onboard somebody and they pass all these checks, then they're, they have, they're deemed a good actor. Therefore, mm -hmm. they have free reign in my ecosystem. And the more confidence you put in your onboarding, the more free reign willingness you have, right? That I think is a problem. That's going to come back to hurt us in a few years from now because people are starting to put a lot of confidence in identity and onboarding sophistication. Which is allow, which means they're allowing high risk um, events like movement of money or whatever it is earlier in the relationship, and that's good because that's a better customer experience. But I think that's going to be the thing that comes back to bite us at some point. And and I have a perspective on how to manage that, which we can chat about now or another day. But the where I think a big risk is in five years is. All these FIs are replatforming to have more sophisticated onboarding and, and um, KYC, KYB flows, but they're putting a bit too much faith in that because synthetic identity, stolen identity, those things are really, really hard to manage. So people are, bad actors are still going to get through. And how do you manage that risk when you onboard what you believe is a good actor, but they're a bad actor? How do you actually do that while providing a good experience is what people were wrestling with 10 years ago but they're putting a bit too much faith in the new technology in this space. And they still need to have some plan for what happens with a bad actor on boards after the fact. Chase, I'm still recovering from the fact that you told me that it's a good thing to have faster fraud at the beginning. And now you're going to sit here and tell me about how, you know, there is too much in onboarding and trusting in it, which I totally agree. And then how you need to make sure that you have continuous monitoring to take place and then how you can identify afterwards, which I agree that might be a conversation for another day. But before I let you go, I do have one last question. And this is one that I, I ask everybody who's new to the show. And that is, you know, you've obviously done very well in the world of electronic payments. I would ask though, what would you tell somebody who's brand new to this industry? Say that college graduate who's just now getting into the world of electronic banking, electronic payments. Maybe they work for a bank or a credit union. Maybe they work for one of the fintechs. Maybe they're even going in the regulation side of things. What advice would you give them that you think would be important for their career to help them to be able to advance their career and have the same type and level of success that you've had? Great question. My advice would be find an area to become very pointy in and then grow into general from there. I think that what I see with a lot of people entering this field is they have general knowledge, but you don't need general knowledge until you're managing the whole business. You need to have very, very pointy knowledge 
um, early in your career and then kind of leverage that to, to expand your perspective. And so find a field within electronic payments where you have a lot of interest. Maybe that's the machine learning element to it. Maybe that's the um, underwriting element to it. Maybe that is the onboarding element to it or the, the uh, again, find an element in that and become an expert in that and become on the forefront because banks and FIs, especially in banking, less so in, in fintech, but in banking, they're way more willing to be like, oh, here's a whiz kid. I'm going to hire this whiz kid to come and like, and restructure this flow for me. They'll bet on a whiz kid who knows a lot, a lot about something really cutting edge, even if you know nothing about anything else. That's a great way to enter this field, in my opinion, is become an expert in like a cutting edge thing in a subdomain within payments or, or fintech and then get your door in that way and then become really good at that and then start broadening your perspective from there. What a great answer. Become an expert. Well, I want to thank you for being on the Payments Podium. Uh, this has been a real education. And for those of you out there listening, we just heard from an expert, Chase Petrie, COO of Pi. He has given us a great education on risk management, risk monitoring, what can be done in real time, some incredible answers. And if you, if you want him to come back on the show and talk more about the onboarding and the identity and what that looks like, go ahead and shoot me a message, let me know, and I'll, I'll see about getting Chase back on to have that further discussion. I am Kevin Olson, the Payments Professor, and if there's a topic you would like to have on the Payments Podium, if there's a speaker you'd like to have on the Payments Podium, email me, Kevin, at paymentsprofessor.com, and we'll do what we can to get that topic or that speaker here to address what your educational needs are to further your work in the world of electronic payments and education. But for now, class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson. See you on Thursday.